Thanks for pressing play. How does the United States military determine if its orthopedic surgeons have the required knowledge, skills, and abilities to successfully deploy and provide excellent and competent care downrange? How can these metrics be improved? And what should military medicine do to address the gaps in education, training, and experience of orthopedic surgeons? Stick around and find out. Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a first-hand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. Military Medicine and War Docs present a Ready Medical Force Special Collection. We speak with the authors of recently accepted journal articles addressing the key readiness issues in operational medicine and discuss the importance of their findings. On this episode, we speak with retired Air Force Colonel and orthopedic trauma surgeon, Dr. Patrick Osborne. He discusses his military medicine paper, Ascertaining the Readiness of Military Orthopedic Surgeons, a revision to the Knowledge, Skills, and Abilities Methodology. I'm your host, retired Army urologist, Doug Soderdahl. Today, we're privileged to welcome retired Air Force Colonel, Dr. Patrick Osborne to Wardox. Oz, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Doug. It's good to see you again. All right, we're going to discuss your article that talks about the knowledge, skills, and abilities methodology. So I want to start off with just a simple question. Why did you write this article and what concerns or questions were you trying to address? This all really started being built in our mind to question this when the first results on the KSA dashboard came out in late 2018. And I noticed some interesting findings where certain sites and certain surgeons at, whether it's BMC or Walter Reed or wherever, really had a wide variation in who was meeting the threshold that was set up for the, the KSA project. And there, there were certainly questions about what the threshold actually meant. And so we started digging into it. I started digging into it in particular because you could look and see what you got credit for and things like that. And it was interesting to me that one of the most common codes that I was getting KSA credit for was prescribing and handing out a, a fracture boot, a cam walker. One of the most common procedures was closed management of fractures and, and casting. And those are all important and knowing when to do those things is important, but we felt very strongly and I certainly felt very strongly that that was not readiness and that wasn't wartime readiness that should be inherent in you being an orthopedic surgeon, but it also should be inherent in being a family practice doc and ED physician, certainly, and other specialties that deploy or don't deploy in this their normal role. So I really wanted to dig into why are we not focusing on real readiness? What I want to call renal readiness for orthopedic surgeons. And, and that led to an in-depth review of what was getting credit and how much, and, and we took it from there. Can you briefly describe how KSA scores are generated and used to measure readiness in military medicine? Sure. It, I will say up front, the, the amount of work that went into the KSA project is immense. And the dedication to everybody who built this should be applauded. And it was a good start. And we certainly built off that and we didn't come up with our modifications out of the blue. And so I do have to give credit where credit is due. However, the way that this, that it was built was really looking at what was common for in-garrison procedures, not 
really specifically tailored to what is seen downrange. And the thresholds we felt were, were fairly arbitrary. And the methodology is, is quite complex and they would go through and how much time it would take, how much complexity a certain case would require or a surgeon would encounter. And based on the time and going through different coding rules and AMA recommendations in the coding rules, they would come up with a point value for a certain case or group of cases. And then that would be kind of spread across the whole group. And that was one of the first problems that we found is fracture care for a for one complex fracture oftentimes was lumped in with something that was far more complex and probably far more applicable in many cases as well. And that really ran the gamut for, for all sorts of fracture care, tumor cases, et cetera, et cetera. So we really wanted to tie it to something other than in-garrison care because everybody has written a lot, has said a lot about how in-garrison care is not providing enough for surgeons. And so interestingly, we started building this kind of based on my own biases. And, and luckily, Jen Gurney and others came out with a review of what had been done throughout all of OIF, OND, and OEF. And it really tied in well with uh, what was the most common procedure groupings that were performed by surgeons downrange. And, and so that's where that, that dovetailed really nicely. And we didn't have to undo a lot of work because it, it fell in nicely with actual data. And that was the foundation of our, our revision. How did you decide what CPT codes to eliminate from the KSA scores and which CPT codes needed to be realigned to different tiers with different relative weightings? Was that all based on expert opinion? We worked with all three service consultants during this revision. That's why it was adopted eventually by the KSA, PMO, and, and DHA. But a lot of it was, uh, it was very simple. Having a femur fracture in with a finger fracture Nobody really argued that kind of stuff. Doing a small laceration repair initially had been grouped with things like much larger debridements or, or much more complex wound care. And, and so that was pretty incontrovertible. And so we just ended up going through line by line of every code that was included in the, the KSA methodology. We threw out all the, the supply codes. There's a lot of those in there. There was a lot of injection codes. Those we removed. We removed things like the second hundred square centimeters of skin grafting, because in some places that, that was taking a, a huge score bump for a facility or surgeons and really kind of disproportionately weighting it. And we saw that more with the general surgeons at BAMC with the burn center. But there were things like that where multi-level fusion of a spine, we cut off and removed all the codes for an additional level. We wanted to count the, the case and all the different procedures that were done during that, as opposed to we had a case with a spine fracture and a femur fracture. Those are two separate codes. We have a spine fracture that has a three-level fusion, that's, that's one code and one credit code. And so we brought all that to the consultants and we got their concurrence and, and that we would move forward with that. Now, shifting things around, we still wanted to give credit for some of these things and appropriate credit, but one of the things that we worked on with the consultants was which groupings are going to get uh, extra credit, essentially, or and ended up getting double point value, which was amputations, external fixation, and, and those, those top critical wartime skills-related procedures. We still wanted to give credit for simpler fractures or other less involved procedures, 
So those are ones that we moved maybe to hand or foot or other areas or arthroscopy or what have you. They're still complex. They're still important. They still provide reps and a mindset and cognitive training for a surgeon, but they're not really directly tied to critical wartime skills. So we, we felt that those did not deserve the double credit. And that was kind of the rearrangement methodology. And so you wound up with four tiers, with tier one being the most aligned with critical wartime skills, and then tier four still getting credit, but not getting as much credit as the original KSA scores. What was the difference between the KSA scores before you looked at it and made revisions and afterwards? And what was the most surprising thing that you found? We didn't look at the scoring. We just looked at the raw number of, of procedures and cases that were done. So cases, one trip to the operating room, where you may do multiple procedures. And we were unsurprised that BAMSI had a preponderance of the, the tier one cases. We were a little bit surprised in kind of the mismatch of how many tier three cases were being done. And then if you separated out tier four, how that made that even more glaring, where the vast majority of, of cases and procedures done at some MTS was, was really those lower tier cases, hardware removals and things like that that again, are certainly important for patients and, and for a medically ready force. But from a readiness standpoint, we question their, their value. And I think most people can see some value in questioning that. And so it really kind of starkly highlighted where things are happening from a readiness standpoint, or, or certainly a, a very expeditionary skill set aligned readiness forum to what people are getting throughout the rest of the MHS. And we only looked eventually at the, the top 10 markets across DHA and there's several other markets other than that. And there's, there's a lot of places where the MTFs are not providing a whole lot of readiness and KSA exposure based on this methodology. And that, that was the, the unfortunately unsurprising thing, but, but it was really laid out in, in detail and objectively. One of the interesting things I found in your paper was that the data set that you used, M2, allowed you to look at the procedures and diagnosis were not only seen in the military treatment facilities, the hospital where the active duty orthopedic surgeons work, but you also were able to look at what cases on beneficiaries were going out to the network in purchase care. How would you rate how the military does in, let's say, recapturing those cases that have readiness value and bringing them back to our active duty surgeons to perform? So that, that certainly is a high visibility topic and something that's gotten a lot of discussion. And there's really two camps. One of we need to bring in everything that we can get, everything from the purchase care system. And the others who feel that it's very difficult to bring in the high acuity cases because transferring out from a trauma center or for somebody who has a GI bleed or, or something like that, who is not necessarily an extremist, but maybe critical and, and certainly potentially unstable, transferring them from an appropriate level facility to an MTF that doesn't do that very often just for the sake of quote unquote readiness poses some dilemmas. And, and I think a lot of the, the stuff that we briefly looked at with purchase care, it, it was stuff that probably was never going to be dragged back into an MTF because it had to be taken care of then. And, and the facility was able to do that. Now, in the end, we decided to not include the purchase care stuff because it was very, it, it just would be too complex in it, analyzing things and, and what of that is recapturable and what isn't. 
But the other things that we threw out that has garnered a lot of questioning is we we did not include external resource sharing agreement cases and we didn't include moonlighting. And then the only reason we did not do that is because the the data is inconsistent at best. Not every MTF actually gets all of the case data on their URSAs. And the reporting of cases done doing ODE is wildly variable. And there's no set and consistent centralized way to gather that data that has been implemented. And so we felt that that would be inadvisable to include just because the data was was all was not trustable. So was that something that would make looking at the KSA projects for Compo 3, the reservists, a lot more difficult? And how would you figure out how to get that data in a centralized and standardized manner? There are some means out there that you can pull insurance data based on NPI number and HIPAA taxonomy and things like that, where you could probably get those data for insured patients for major carriers or insurance and drill down to the, the site level or and even the surgeon level. But I don't know where that is in discussions. That's something we had brought up in the past. But you need something like that, not self-reporting, which was being touted as one of the things of, well, people are going to submit their case logs and we'll, we'll count that. That That is not going to be consistent where we can't get people to sign notes half the time, as you well know. You need something that is going to give you actually valuable data. And, and then the other part of ODE that was always my contention. And for those who don't know, ODE is off-duty employment. And that's just another word for moonlighting, basically. And one of my concerns with that, and certainly one of the ways you can use this data is to look at what an MTF or a market, a DHA market provides is where is that moonlighting performed? Are they going across country and moonlighting and then coming back? Or are they covering call downtown and getting cases in their local area? Both have value, but I think the latter, when you have surgeons that can work in the local area, get cases in the local area, then it becomes a good thing and a positive factor for that MTF for feeling good about assigning surgeons there and knowing that if even if they can't get a robust clinical volume in the MTF, there are options in that area. And so maybe it's not a two-man shop. Maybe it's a four-man shop because moonlighting's okay and it, and it serves the readiness purpose in the local area. Again, that's just my personal feeling, but unless the data is reliable, I don't think you can count on it. The KSA project primarily measures the number of reps or procedures that are deemed important. How do we know if the surgeons are competent despite the number of CPT codes they generate per year? We can measure cognitive abilities with tests, but how do we evaluate procedural skills? Where does simulation fit or observation of case performance in review of operative outcomes? No, I think that is an excellent question, and certainly that would be the holy grail if you could ensure somebody's competence. And I, I think there's multiple factors that go into that. And that is certainly one of my issues with the KSA threshold was, well, why why is this the threshold? And, and there's a, a methodology and a formula for that. But how does that, how do we say that that applies to everybody? Old guys like you and I, we probably don't need as many as somebody who is right out of residency or fellowship. And Maybe the residency and fellowship recent graduates don't need as many as the mid-career guys because everything's fresh in their mind. 
And so having a threshold that applies to everybody and saying, well, yeah, we're, we're meeting the readiness benchmark, I think is, a, is flawed thinking. Simulation certainly has a role. The cognitive skills, I, th I think, have some role. But other than some of the formal courses that are held, the combat extremity surgery course, some of these other courses, asset course, they don't really evaluate and check somebody off as ready, being able to do certain skills necessarily. It's more they've attended this course and they'll remediate them if there's really huge problems in, the, in those courses. But I think by and large, those courses are meant for exposure, not to ensure competency and proficiency. So you could have observers, you could have a cadre of experienced people that everybody could agree on. And you go and you, you, look, you do site visits and watch people operate, check M&M records. There's multiple things that you could do. I just, I don't know what might be the best method. And I certainly don't know how you would find the manpower and money to do some of the more intensive things that probably would go further in, in determining that competency and proficiency. So I think that's, that, that is really the, the main issue. And I think everybody at this point is thinking that more is better. And I certainly agree with that. We just got to get more for everybody. I've been told by several orthopedic surgeons that what they are expected to do downrange is relatively easier than what they do in their quote day job. And that as long as they're busy at home, they should be fine during deployment. What do you think about that sentiment? I, I, very much disagree with that sentiment. Again, I will acknowledge the bias of being at BAMC for as long as I was. And technically, some doing an initial amputation, doing a debridement may not seem uh, overly difficult and, and certainly may not be as difficult as a complex ligamentous re reconstruction of the knee or a, a bad or difficult total hip case. However, doing a debridement well, initial debridement well, is certainly... I always, I've always told my residents that's the most important procedure I can teach them and to do it sequentially, to do it thoroughly and, and to make sure that you're setting that patient up for success because we've all seen debridements and in, in other initial procedures that have not helped anybody, but they were done, but they were, were not done as best as they could have. And I think it, it, in the end, it can affect outcomes, infection and, and other issues. And so... That goes to experience of doing the simple things, but doing them really well and doing them in increasingly complex and acute settings. And it really hands and the motions and the, the instruments and the teams that you need to do a good debridement. That's a very, that is very simple, but it's, it's a mindset issue. It is an experience issue. It is the ability to think quickly and accurately in a setting where the patient may not do, be doing well or being confident in saying, well, you know what, this leg has to go or yeah, this, this muscle, we really want to save this muscle, but it's obviously dead, but still talking yourself into saving it. And then you've bought more procedures, potentially worse outcome because you left behind something that you really felt like you shouldn't, but you didn't maybe have the confidence to, to take that that bigger debridement. And that, it, to me, is where doing the actual complex open fracture debridement, doing external fixation, doing some of these, these more true, what we call true critical wartime skills, it's really about the decision-making and how, you, when, when done is done. What do you think that your findings from this paper suggest need to be further studied to ensure a ready medical force? So my vision for this was always to build this into 
how do we get more for more people? And C-STARS and, and I forget if it's AMC 3T, whatever the Army program was and the Navy has a program, those are all, all very important adjuncts and they get that team experience. Moonlighting, again, is, is great for that surgeon, but it's not good for the team. It's not bad for the team, but it, it doesn't benefit anybody but the surgeon. And that is, again, the, the beauty of BAMC and, and some of the other MTFs that do some of this higher level readiness care is that everybody gets involved, whether it's a tech, nurse, anesthesia, you name it. All those people that are either going to deploy or catch patients when they come stateside are going to get reps in doing that. So how do we create more of those opportunities beyond the MILSIV partnerships, beyond the, the limited exposure that we get with Moonlighting? And so I think looking at readiness in this way is really the key to determining where the, the MHS, where the military health system gets readiness from. Not only supports the ready medical force, but also provides readiness training for their medical personnel, surgeons, and everybody else. And, and so now we can look at who's got, who's doing this stuff now? Who has the expertise? Who has the infrastructure? Who has the supply? Who has the will to do this? And then look in the, in the surrounding area is because everybody wants to be a trauma center. As you well know, we've, that's been something that's been that people have tried to do on and off again for a long time. There's a lot of commitment, a lot of money, a lot of people that need to be dedicated to a trauma center doing what a trauma center does. And you need to find those sites that can actually support it. And that goes back to local community buy-in. It goes into all the things that an MTF needs to bring to that mission. And if they're not already doing readiness there at, at even a moderate level, are you going to commit that much more to build it into a trauma center? And if you're going to do that, then you better make sure that the local community is going to play and that you're actually going to see an increase in volume. I think Camp Lejeune is a perfect example where my impression is that they could use more money and people. And I think they could provide a great service to that area. And I think they could boom. But I, I, there's so many competing priorities that it's very hard to prioritize who should get what. And I think looking at readiness in this way, who provides that critical wartime skill set, whether it's general surgery, orthopedics, any surgical specialty, and we started work on working for emergency medicine as well, where are they going to get it and where can they get it? And that is where we should focus our investment. To me, that that is where this should go and where, where I certainly tried to go before I retired. We've been speaking with Dr. Patrick Osborne on Wardock's podcast. Oz, thanks again for discussing your paper and sharing your insights with us. And thank you for your service to this nation. Thank you, Doug. It was great talking to you. And now a brief message from the chairman of the Wardock's board of directors. Hi. I'm Major General Retired Jeff Clark, and I have the privilege to serve as chair of the Wardocs Board of Directors. Let me begin by thanking AMSIS for our AMSIS Wardocs partnership, Military Medicine, the International Journal of AMSIS, and specifically Dr. Steve Rothwell, the editor of our outstanding journal of military medicine. Readiness, a medically ready force and a ready medical force, is central to military medicine. And anything that we want to understand and improve in medicine, and in particular military medicine, requires good research. It requires science. 
I want to thank the authors of these articles that are published in the Journal of Military Medicine for taking on the challenge of doing the research to understand what we know, what we don't know, and where we need to go in improving the care we provide on the battlefield. I hope these authors inspire you to ask and answer the next Ready Medical Force question and publish in the Journal of Military Medicine. Thank you for what you and your family do in service to our nation. Be safe. May God bless. Thank you for listening to War Docs. We sure hope you enjoyed it. War Docs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts and rate and review this episode and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team War Docs on wardocspodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, War Docs has you covered. Spread the word.